theyeshiva.net. Hello, hello, Alan. Good afternoon. Shalom. Aleichem Shalom. Okay. How are you? Looks like a beautiful library behind you. Good. Reminds you of your Zayda's house, Rib Label. No, my Zayda didn't have a lot of much of a library. You know, I grew up in a house without books, interestingly enough. Um, we talked a lot, but where there, were, there aren't a lot of books. My house has a lot of books, but... You compensated. Compensate we didn't grow up with music, books, culture. We grew up with a lot of talking, a lot of arguments. Okay. You did we well with sitter, that. We had, we had a sitter, a chumash, and that's it, you know. But your grandfather was one of the founders of Torah Vadas, no? He was. Uh, both of my grandfathers were on the and on the first young Israel, the young Israel of Brooklyn. And uh, my, one of my grandfather's names is on a plaque with Mr. Wolf. I forget. Wolf from born in is the yeshiva. In Williamsburg? Bar Park? In Williamsburg. Yeah, no, in Williamsburg. I was born in Williamsburg. Um, I think 193 U Street. It's now a base medrash. Yeah. Where do you? Where are you from? I grew up in Brooklyn, but now here in Rockland County, Muncie. Ah, oh, good, 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 good. So, where in Brooklyn did you grow up? Crown Heights, Montgomery Street. <laughs> oh yeah, I went to I went to Brooklyn Tom Utical Academy on Bedford and President Street. Oh wow. Between President, between Bedford and Franklin, yeah. For elementary? No, high school. And Yeshiva University too? No, I got denied admission. I wasn't smart enough, so I had to go to Brooklyn <laughs> College. Okay. Is that part of your rosebud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, what are we going to talk about and for how long? You tell me. Uh-uh. I would love to talk about half an hour. Okay. Yeah, whatever you'll give us, we'll gracefully accept. Okay. It's an honor and a privilege. Yeah. Oh, it's my it's my honor and privilege. Good. And I what was is in your home a few years your... ago? We were talking about a Jewish prisoner who was in dire conditions. I came with Mister uh, Barry Zuck. I don't know, so I saw all the books in your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I'm sure I, I, I mean, I, I represent a lot of Jewish prisoners free. So, um, you know, I don't know which one that was. On behalf of Mr. Rabashkin, a friend of mine. Thank you. I did. I did. I worked on his behalf and I did a lot of work for Olive on a lot of cases. I've helped about maybe 10 people now. So we can talk about that. We can talk whatever you want to talk about. Who is the audience? The audience is really uh, very diverse. I mean, mostly the Jewish community. Um, I would say religious, secular, more affiliated, and some less affiliated. Very diverse. Good. But more or less Jewish Good. brothers and sisters from the world over. Good. The so best I have the Let's honor start. and the privilege of speaking to uh, the Honorable Alan Dershowitz. And uh, if you will look at his Wikipedia page, he's immediately identified as somebody who uh, possesses many controversial views, <laughs> which makes him one of the fascinating and extraordinary Jewish figures of our time. And it's really an honor and a privilege to be here with you on a Zoom. Today we say Gam Zoom Latova with Alan. So my first, my first question is, if I may, what would you consider when you reflect on your life, a rich, interesting, extraordinary life, really part and parcel of contemporary Jewish history and American history, great fighter for civil liberties, great fighter on behalf of the underdog and for great moral virtue and justice in the United States and abroad. What would you consider your greatest success, what are you most proud of when you look back at your life? That's a great question. Uh, you talk about Zoom. My grandmother would probably say I'm oiskazumt. I do it uh, so often now. Uh, yeah. But um, I would say I would list uh, two things. 
one on the micro, one on the macro. Well, to start on the macro level, I think I helped change the tone of the debate regarding Israel on college campuses. I think that my book, The Case for Israel, and my appearances on 100 college campuses, not only around the country, but around the world, Oxford University, Cambridge University, University of Leiden, um, you name it, uh, American universities, virtually every American university, I think I've helped change the nature of the debate on Israel and help to create a more sympathetic attitude toward Israel among open-minded people, not people of the extreme left, not people who are extreme in their views. But I think that's the accomplishment I'd be most proud of on the macro large level. On the micro level, in an individual, probably helping Natan Sharansky get out of the gulag. Uh, I was his lawyer for m- almost eight years. Um, and I never forget um, when he crossed the Gran- the Glanicky Bridge and was a free man. And a couple of days later when I met him and he threw his arms around me and he whispered just three words in my ear, uh, which were so important. Baruch Matir Asurim. Um, you know, blessed are those who free the imprisoned. Of course, for every day growing up, I said the bracha of, you know, Matir Asurim and, uh, and uh, to have participated in it and helped him get out of the gulag and then become a close friend of his and a supporter when he was in politics in Israel. Those are two of my major professional accomplishments. Of course, personally, wonderful children, grandchildren, wife, family, um, very supportive. Um, that's everybody's most important accomplishment. Yes, of course. Now, if I may, uh, you'll grant me permission. If you don't want to talk about it, I understand. What, what would you consider your greatest failure or your greatest regret? It's a fair point. Uh, my greatest regret was that I ever met a man named Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I was introduced to him by the Lady Rothschild. Um, people told me he was this wonderful philanthropist. He had given $30 million to Harvard. He had built the Harvard Hillel building. Um, and so I was willing to meet him. And of course, the result was that I was falsely accused by a woman I never met of having had uh, sex with her. Fortunately, um, we were able to prove that she made up the whole story. I never met her. We found emails from her, which she tried to hide and which she admits she never heard of me. Nonetheless, notwithstanding all the overwhelming evidence that I never met this woman, to its everlasting disgrace, the 92nd Street Y, this great center of Jewish learning, yeah. where I spoke for 25 years, canceled me and said I can no longer speak there. They acknowledged that I had nothing wrong, but they said they didn't want trouble. I mean, that's just old-fashioned McCarthyism. So uh, the 92nd Street Y behaved horribly, miserably, very unjewishly in the way they canceled me. They wouldn't allow me to speak about Israel at the 92nd Street Y, even though thousands of people wanted to hear me speak. They didn't allow me to speak because of a false charge, a false accusation. And, um, you know, they they violate, obviously, the Aseret Hadibrot. Uh, they took seriously the false witness, the casting of false witness. You know, in Jewish law, if you make a false accusation, you get the same penalty as the person would have gotten had you truthfully accused them. Right. Jewish law, very seriously false accusations. We learned the lesson of Yosef and Potiphar's wife. And, uh, you know, it's part of the Ten Commandments, but the 92nd Street Y chose to ignore it. How do you deal with that emotionally, personally? Does that very hurtful? Or you say, you know, I, I have I my name I don't get hurt. I get angry. Um, I get angry and I fight back and um, and I am fighting back. I uh, sued um, the people who falsely accused me. I will win the lawsuit because the evidence is overwhelming. But there will still be some people who, if you are accused, they think you must be uh, guilty. Uh, and, I mean, that's why I actually I, I wrote a, a book on the subject. Here it is. It's called Guilt by Accusation, yes. where I take on the issue. You know, people said to me, oh, don't write the book. It'll just make more people see the accusation. I said, I don't care about that. I want to make sure everybody knows the accusation is totally false. So in the book, I have all the evidence, tape recordings, the emails, everything that proves I never met the woman. But I wish I had never met Jeffrey Epstein. My life would have been a lot easier for the last six years. Wow. How do you explain that just two mortgages after the Holocaust, so many Jews loathe and despise Israel. I don't have to tell you what a man like uh, 
Professor uh, Norman Finkelstein or Chomsky have said about you, have written about you, and so many yes. others. How do you explain that after so many thousands of years of so much Jewish suffering, educated, literate Jews would be so uh, self-hating towards the mm-hmm. Jewish homeland that we have after dozens of Muslim countries? We have one little... One little piece of land that used to be the size of Dallas International Airport. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's absolutely remarkable. How do you how do you from all your years it, of experience? What is it? It's very hard to explain. I mean, Jewish self hate goes back generations. Of course, we know that even during the Holocaust there were kapos. Uh, we know that during every period of Jewish history there were Jews who turned against uh, Jewish values. And I think today to be an anti-Zionist to single out Israel for special opprobrium and criticism is the newest form of anti-Semitism. And we have to fight it. And I do fight it. And uh, I appear on college campuses and I'm booed. And uh, and sometimes they stop me from appearing. Uh, by the way, because of this false accusation, I'm no longer invited on college campuses. So this was not only an attack on me personally, it was an attack on my ability to defend Israel on college campuses, even in Jewish venues. I no longer get invited to Jewish book fairs uh, to speak because maybe five or six people would protest. So because five or six people would protest, a thousand people are denied the opportunity to hear me. And so I have to make my points known in my writings on my podcast. I now have a podcast that has over 100,000 subscribers. It's called The Dersh Show. All that's missing is the wits, Dersh Show wits. And the wits is provided by the listeners and viewers. You can get it every day on YouTube, on uh, um, uh, all the other channels, Rumble. And uh, today I talked about Israel on the show. I talked about the International Criminal Court's a vicious attack on Israel. And look, I'm 82 years old and I plan to spend the rest of my life, as long as life is given to me by Hashem, uh, defending Israel and defending Jewish values. I see that as my main mission. May you live till 120 and longer. Who is the next Alan Dershowitz in the Jewish world? Who's your ear? Well, we we need to train young people. Uh, I have helped to do that. I have a number of young protégés who are out there, um, and men and women, both. And I'm hoping that many more will follow and will become the advocates for Israel because it's so important that we leave behind us people who can be better than we were. And uh, there are such people. Your great-grandfather was Ripschaya, the famous Ripschaya Dershowitz, saved from the Triangle Fire in Greenwich Village, 1911. They say because he didn't come to work on Shabbos. That's, That's right. your great-grandfather, right? That was my great-grandfather. Of course, I never knew my great-grandfather. Turnov, uh, Turnov Galicia, Turnov in, in, in Galicia, in Poland. I was there. Yeah, uh, so was I. Um, uh, and I visited in the area uh, where my grandparents uh, came from. Uh, the Dershowitz family for years uh, lived uh, in that area of Galicia, and uh, fortunately they were able to emigrate. And then my grandfather helped save 29 members of our family from Vierno, Czechoslovakia, on the eve of the uh, Holocaust. And uh, um, and so, you know, we have a, a proud, a proud history that goes back a long, long time. Uh, the Dershowitz, they all worked hard. They were laborers. They were workers. Um, they all obviously studied the Gemara and, uh, and, uh, were Jewishly educated and, and care deeply about educating, uh, their, their children. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I went back and I saw the little, the little shtetl. Pilsno, where my great-grandparents, uh, um, just south of Tarnoff, not too far from Krakow. And, um, and I found out about the fate of some of the Dershowitz family. Two of them died in Auschwitz, a young boy, um, 15, and his sister, uh, 16. Their father escaped. Um, he, he was a part of the resistance, so he was in the woods, but they captured the two children, brought them to Auschwitz. And and murdered them. Um, and, I think your, your, um, so, your great grandfather Schaya was called the Tzaddik of Williamsburg. So I read. Well, I, I hope Tzaddik of Williamsburg. Uh, yeah, I know. He I know was, you say that your grandfather Label or Lewis was a founder of Torah Vadas with Rabbi Yom and Wilhelm. 
He was. My well, grandfather and, grew up and, in a very, uh, uh, found, you grew up, and you went to Orthodox schools yourself as a child. And then you grew up. To, I went to Yeshiva Chaim, and where I was a bandit. And then I, I was turned down from Flappish Yeshiva because my grades weren't good enough. So I went to Brooklyn Talmudical Academy, where my rabbi said to me afterward, you know, Dershowitz, you got a good mouth on you, but you don't have a Yiddish cup. So you should do something where you have to use your mouth, but not your brain. He said, I have two suggestions. One, you could be a lawyer. Or two, you could be a conservative rabbi. There you don't have to think a lot. That he was, uh, that he meant that as an insult. I wasn't smart enough to be a rabbi, so I had to become a lawyer. Um, I was not a good student in yeshiva. I learned a lot. I still know how to, uh, you know, how to learn. Um, my bar mitzvah sedra was shoftim. I can still lane it. Shoftim v'shotrim titen lechav al shiarecha. I took very seriously. And but you know the interesting and there are two interesting parts of those three words. Number one, why tirdof? Well, why not just accept tzedek? Be just. You have to chase after it. It never is accomplished. It's always a race. There's always going to be people who try to be unjust. So you have to always stay ahead of the unjust people. And then why tzedek tzedek? First of all, we'll never agree about what Sedek is. We'll always have disagreements. There'll be justice for the accused. There'll be justice for the victim. There are so many ways of achieving justice. Injustice is easy. We understand, we recognize injustice very easily. But justice is not so easy to recognize. I think also the Kotzke Rebbe said, and I know your great grandfather was a Rapshitzachasid, Rapshitzachasid. I think the Kotzke Rebbe right. said, Tzedek, Tzedek, you have to pursue justice in just ways. Okay. No, that's, that's very important. That is the procedural and substantive justice. Felix Frankfurter, the great Supreme Court justice, said the history of liberty is a history of procedure, a history of doing it in the right way, doing it in a just way. The ends do not justify the means under Jewish law. And we must always pursue justice justly. I agree with that. So you grew up in a very orthodox, Torah-oriented, mitzvah-oriented home. And then you move on. You become uh, the youngest uh, professor in Harvard University, I think, in the history of Harvard in the early 1960s. Right. What, what motivates you to, so to speak, move on from within the orthodox world? And how do you feel about those choices looking back today? It's a very good and difficult question. Um, I was always a very observant Jew, but I was not a theological Jew. And my home was not filled with theology. I don't ever remember having a conversation with either of my parents or with my grandparents about believing in God, about whether God wrote the Torah. For us, Judaism was the little you with the circle around it. You made sure you didn't eat a candy bar that didn't have a hechsher. Uh, it was waiting six hours, not five hours after meat. Um, with my grandmother, you couldn't even have fish after meat. You had to have the fish before the meat. Uh, you know, every morning to say modani, every night to say shmala mita. Uh, I never broke a rule. I uh, I was the most rule observant person. I still am the most rule observant person in the world. I just live by slightly different rules. So for me, my, my Judaism was orthopraxy. I practiced my Judaism. I practiced my orthodoxy. I didn't think much about theology. I didn't think much about a God. We argued about it as we as kids would do. And then when I turned 28, I was strictly observant until I was 28. Or when I clerked on the Supreme Court, I wouldn't work on Shabbos. Um, when I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, uh, they made a joke of it, and they had every seventh page empty one year just to commemorate the fact that I didn't work on, on Shabbos. And when my kids were old enough, uh, my, I had my kids very young. Um, one of my children was born when I was 21 and a half, and the other one when I was 23. So I had my children very young, and by the time I was 28, I was finding it hard to justify to my children uh, strict orthodoxy because of the practice. And so we're still very Jewish. I mean, I go to an Orthodox synagogue. I go to Park East. 
I love Rabbi Schneier and I love Chazen Helfgott. Um, I still am a shtickle Chazen. I love singing Jewish melodies. I davened in the choir. I was in the choir of Moshe Kusevitsky and Beryl Achagi. And so, you know, my, my Jewish heritage is very deep in me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I try my best not to work on, on Shabbos and Jewish holidays. I won't appear in court, obviously, on any of those days. In fact, I couldn't argue the Pollard case because it was scheduled for second day of Rosh Hashanah. And Justice Ginsburg, uh, of sacred memory, wouldn't postpone it. She said it was only the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And that's not so important. Well, for me, it was important. I celebrate two days of Rosh Hashanah. Wow. So, you know, I'm a mixed picture when it comes to um, to Jewish tradition. You still say the Ani in the morning? Huh? You still say the Ani in the morning? I do. and uh, But, you wow. know, I had an experience. I wonder what I wonder what your listeners will think of this experience. I didn't decide that I was not necessarily a theological believer in everything. It was decided for me. So here's the story. When my son was 10 years old, um, he got very sick. He had a malignant brain tumor and everybody thought he would die. And I went from coast to coast, getting him the best medical care and having surgery and having uh, all kinds of radiation. And thank God he's alive and well. Uh, but for me, the greatest day of my life was taking him to college. I didn't think I'd have that. So we flew to the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder. And then I, got, I was so happy. I had a smile on my face. I got on the airplane going home from Denver Airport. The plane got up in the air and suddenly it started shaking. And the pilot announced in a very shaking voice, we have a very serious problem here. The flaps are locked in the takeoff position. We can't land. If we land, it will risk the plane flipping over, et cetera. We have to get rid of all the fuel. We have to do this. We have to do that. And everybody around me, people were crying. People were praying. People were holding their rosary beads. Um, I took out my notebook and I started to write a letter to my children. And I wrote a letter to each of my then two children. I put them in my, sh- in my uh, electric shaving case, the plastic case, thinking it would survive even if I didn't. And but I noticed something. I noticed that I wasn't praying. I noticed that I wasn't asking God to help me. I didn't choose that. It just was a fact of life that I was not religious in that way. I could still observe and can still be part of the Jewish culture. But when the test occurred, you know, they say there are no atheists in the foxhole. I'm not an atheist. I absolutely am not an atheist. I'm a skeptic. I'm a doubter. I don't know. I don't know. It would not surprise me uh, if the Jewish theology were completely correct. The one thing I am convinced of is that the Jewish God won't punish me for being a skeptic because being skeptical is too Jewish. Um, uh, You know, there's a wonderful story about a great Hasidic Rebbe uh, who never said anything bad about anybody or anything. That was his thing, never say anything bad. And so the Hasidim, to trick him on Purim, said, Rebbe, say something good about being an atheist. And they thought they would trick him. And he said, there's the time in everybody's life when they must be an atheist. What? Yes. When you see a poor person on the street begging for food, don't ever say God will help him. Mm. You must act. There is no God that you're the only person in the world that can save him. So, you know, sometimes I think that way. Sometimes I think the other way. I am utterly uncertain about my views, but I am, I am certain that God would never punish me for having my doubts and thinking. I think about God a lot, um, but you know, I have my, my skepticism. I have my skepticism about evolution, about science, about everything. I'm skeptical about the world. That's the way I am. And I think I learned it from the Talmud. The Talmud is a very skeptical book. It's the first book in history, first religious book ever to preserve the dissenting opinions. In every other religion, they burn dissenters, they hang dissenters, they crucified dissenters. In Judaism, we honored dissenters. That's beautiful. Which story in the Tanakh, in the Torah, inspires, inspired you, inspires you most? 
or challenges. So that's, e- that's easy. Chalila lecha hashofet kol aretz lo How can anybody who's a lawyer not be inspired by that? Here you have Avraham. He has barely met Hashem. I mean, they just meet in the previous chapter. They hardly know each other. And Hashem says, shall I withhold from Avraham what I am going to do to the sinners of Saddam? And he uses the word, Avraham uses the word, you know, the, <clears throat> the King James Version misinterprets it as far be it from thee. No, Khalila. I mean, if you're a Machalel Shabbos, if you're, uh, you know, uh, it's such a strong word. There is no English word capable of, ta- of, of even translating it. It's a desecration of you. It's irreligious of you. <clears throat> How dare you, the judge of all the world, shall himself not do justice? I wish I had the chutzpah to stand up to judges and say that. I have felt it sometimes, but I have never said it. And so that story has inspired me from the day I read it at age 10. I remember talking back to my Rebbe when I was like 10 or 11 years old. And the Rebbe smacked me and said, how dare you talk back to me? I said, Moshe, talk back to God. And of course, wow. the Rebbe said, he was Moshe. And you're not Moshe. <laughs> you're Alan. You're oh, Alan. Oh, oh, I'm not Moshe. I'm Abraham. I'm Moshe to talk back to God. Abraham. <laughs> yeah, but he said, take me from my book. Take, take me. Don't write me in your book if you don't forgive <laughs> me. Lock me out of your book if you don't forgive the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those stories. You know, I wrote a book called The Genesis of Justice, yes, which is my amateurish, my amateurish midrash. And there's a funny story about it. So I was in Israel writing the book. I was in Israel writing the book. And I had a draft of it, a rough draft. And I wanted to show it to my uncle. My uncle, Rav Dr. Zacharia Darshav, changed his name from Dershowitz Darshav. When he moved to Israel, my father's only living youngest brother. Great man, great man, wonderful Talmud Chacham. So I gave him the book to read and he came back to me and said, Avi, my name was Avi in my family. Avi, it's a very good book. It's a very smart book. There's a little bit of apikoros here and there, but it's a very smart book. But I need you to change only one word in the book. I said, for you, Uncle Zaki, of course I'll change one word. What word? Dershowitz on the cover. I said, that word I won't change. Uh, But uh, we had a good exchange about it. And so I've written I've written two books about the, the book of about Bereshit. I've, I wrote my book, The Genesis of Justice, which was translated into Hebrew, uh, Bereshit Tzedek. Uh, and then I wrote a book called Abraham, the world's first, but certainly yes. not last Jewish lawyer. Yes. About yes. Jewish lawyers. I have that too. It's based, I have that too. Yeah, it's based story. Yeah. Using Abraham as a model. I do, very yeah. much so. But, was, and, you know, the great thing about Jewish models, no one's perfect. No Jewish hero is perfect. You know, it's not like Jesus and Muhammad. According to Christian tradition, Jesus is perfect. According to Muslim tradition, Muhammad is perfect. In Jewish tradition, Avraham is not perfect. Moshe is not perfect. Certainly, David Amalek is not perfect. Uh, Joshua is not perfect. You know, people say maybe there were one or two people in the Bible more obscure than others. Uh, Binyamin, maybe he was perfect. Uh, But we don't look for perfection. We look for human beings who deal with life's crises and often in imperfect ways. We look for accountability, not perfection. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because it's realistic. We can have accountability, but we can never have perfection. When we create heroes and try to make them perfect, we're always going to be disappointed. Whether it be Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, David Ben-Gurion, Theodore Herzl, Zev Jabotinsky. None of them was perfect, but boy, were they heroes. I'm just finishing a biography of Zev Zev Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky. What a remarkable man. What an amazing man. Um, Just unbelievable. And Herzl, what an amazing man. These are people who. Some of Jabotinsky's speeches. You have to listen to some of his Yiddish speeches. He was a brilliant. You know, I. Only been able, I've only been able to find one online. If you have others, send them to me, because I'd love to hear him speak. He spoke like 11 languages. Yes. Uh, he was supposed to be, he was reputed to be the greatest art of the first half of the 20th right. century, barring none. And, um, and the competition was pretty stiff. I mean, he went all around Russia promoting Zionism. He created the first Jewish army since the Maccabees. 
yeah. um, Legion, the, the Zion Mule Corps. Amazing, amazing man. Nachem Begin's inspiration, his mentor, his teacher. Yeah. And I, I spent time with Menachem Begin, and we talked about Jabotinsky. And um, people don't realize, you know, everybody knows the story of the boat, the Altalena. A lot of people don't know Altalena was Jabotinsky's name. It was his literary pseudonym. And so the boat was, of course, named after Jabotinsky, the Altalena. Wow. And um, part of Jewish history. That was a great decision of Begin not to allow civil war. Right. Well, it wasn't so much Begin's decision as it was Ben-Gurion's. They, you know, Begin was prepared to accept arms uh, and uh, brought in the Altalena and Ben-Gurion fired on him. I have a cousin who recently died. Uh, he was an Israeli ambassador. He could not say the word Ben-Gurion without wow. putting a curse word between the word Ben and Gurion because wow. he was on the Altalena and a shell missed him just by inches and he said ben gurion tried to kill me he tried to kill begin you know yeah. jews have always disagreed with each other the irgun and the haganah the stern gang yeah. these were all they had a common cause a common end but uh some of them pursued sedek more justly and some of them pursued it a little less justly wow who are some of the great one or a few jewish leaders or personalities in the last generation that have that inspire you or have inspired you? Well, number one, of course, Elie Wiesel, who uh, was a close, close friend. He sent me to Russia when I was in my 30s. He said to me, Alan, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, here's the ticket. You go to Russia. You defend Jews in Russia. He had just come back from Russia. He had written The Jews of Silence. And he sent me there as Tishaliach. And I went. And then I was his shaliach on many, many other occasions. I miss him every single day. Wow. I once heard a speech of you about an interesting debate you had with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I think about Jesse. It wasn't a debate. It wasn't a debate. It wasn't a debate. It, uh, that, that would dishonor him. Uh, I would never debate him. He was such a wise man. It was an exchange of views. Because Chabad invited uh, Congressman Helms to speak, is that what happened? No, oh, he uh, they they honored Senator Jesse Helms, Senator. who at the time still expressed racist views and sometimes anti-Semitic views. And so I wrote a letter, not criticizing, but just raising the question why. And he wrote me this brilliant response. It's in the archives of the Chabad our exchange, mm. in which said, "At Chabad, we don't honor." For the past alone, we honor for the future. We try to impact and affect behavior. And, of course, Jesse Helms became Israel's strongest supporter on the Foreign Relations Committee and became a great friend of Israel. And so the Rebbe was right and I was wrong. Wow. We also had discussions about the appropriate way of dealing with Soviet Jewry. I was more in favor of open demonstrations, economic pressure, legislation. He was more in favor of behind-the-scenes negotiations. And we discussed that, and we agreed that uh, the two approaches could be compatible if they were done right. Hmm. You discussed that in person or in correspondence? Per no, personally, personally. I met the Rebbe three times. Yeah. When, this, this first one, when, I was, uh, when I was 14 years old, I met him for the first time. Really? Um, his secretary was a man named Rabbi Groner. Label and Groner. Right. And when he first became the Rebbe, he had just, I mean, he was in his maybe late 30s or something. I don't remember. I can tell you the year. It was the fall of 1951. Um, and my yeshiva was uh, about a mile away from the Chabad headquarters. And my best friend in yeshiva was Tzvi Groner, the nephew of Rabbi Groner. So one day we went he invited us to have lunch with him. We went to have lunch, never anticipating meeting the Rebbe. We were sitting down and having lunch with Rabbi Groner, Tzvi Groner, and me, and this man with this remarkable black beard and piercing eyes walks in, uh, doesn't introduce himself, um, and just 
turns to us and says, so you're yeshiva bachets. Yes. What are you learning? And so we both said, Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, I forget which it was. And he asked us a couple of questions. He gave us a bachina. And I have no idea whether I passed it or not, but I was tested by the Lubavitcher Rebbe when I was like 14 years old. That was my first meeting with him. My second meeting with him was when Arthur Goldberg was running for governor of New York. And um, Arthur Goldberg asked me to accompany him uh, because I spoke a little Yiddish and Hebrew and uh, to accompany him with, to a meeting with the Rebbe. And so I sat in on the meeting between Arthur Goldberg and the Rebbe. And then the third time was in the 70s um, when we when I had been in the Soviet Union and we had a meeting about Soviet Jewry. And then we had the correspondence. What do you, what what are you what would be your summation of the Lubavitcher in terms of his personality, his his reach, his perspective, his wisdom, his accomplishments? Un, un, unbelievable, isn't it? There are no words to describe it. Um, you know, the Jewish tradition says there are Lamed Bubniks. Um, um, you know, only a few in a generation. He was not only a Lamed Bubnik; he was a Bubnik. He was one of a handful of transformative figures in the 20th century, along with Ben-Gurion and Herzl and Jabotinsky. And, uh, and he has to be in that category uh, for a different reason. Chabad has become the most remarkable Jewish organization uh, currently on the planet. Uh, I say on the planet. Uh, the joke was when they send the rover to Mars, they, people expected to see a Chabad house there <laughs> Uh, every place I've gone in the world, and I've been all over, I was in every little city in the Soviet Union when I was defending Russian Jews. I was in every shtetl. There was always a Chabad house. Wow. When I went to uh, Indonesia, there was a Chabad house. When I went to, when I went to Chiang Mo, there was a, you know, everywhere in the world. And I helped to found the, the Chabad at universities. I was the first founding faculty advisor of Chabad at Harvard. And Chabad at Harvard was the first that then spread all over the Rabbi, world. Rabbi Zarki, Rabbi Zarki, right? Hershey Zarki came to me and everybody yeah. laughed at him. How could you have a Chabad at Harvard? People with beards and payas and yarmulke at Harvard. And I said, I'm on your side. We're going to do it. Just do two things for me. I said, two things. One, don't try to be smarter than the professors. We have enough people appealing our brains. We need people to appeal to our neshama, to our heart, to our lev. So Beautiful. do that, and then they marvelously. And second, I said, try to have events where you don't have to separate men from women. And so in the beginning, the first years always had only events where halachically men and women could be together. But Chabad became so popular wow. that the students demanded a minion demanded that they have Purim and Passover and all that. So now, of course, there has to be separation, but it's minimal separation. When you go to a Shabbos dinner at Chabad, there are flower pots separating the men from the women. And as soon, and by the way, women can have their own uh, efforts to have some of the the prayers, the lachadodi, and that, and they 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 figure out ways of increasing the role of women. And then the minute uh, the Elena is done or whatever the kaddish is done, they take the flowers away, and 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 we're all together. So um, and the dinners at Chabad at Harvard are amazing. Last time I was at Chabad, I spoke to five hundred people Friday night, wow. including non-Jews. Um, uh, my grandson, who was not particularly uh, religious came. He wanted to, he loves Chabad. He went to Harvard and he loves Chabad. And uh, a lot of his friends went. So it attracts people from every background. What do you feel about uh, Barry Weiss quitting the New York Times and what has become of the New York Times? Do you agree with her? I do agree with her. I think the New York Times uh, has been taken over by young leftists who don't appreciate true diversity. They want racial and gender diversity, but they don't want ideological and religious diversity. And Barry did the right thing. And she's created a terrific career for herself now. She speaks all over the world. Yeah. Uh, it was a good move. It was just a had move. A, a, she, she's become so important now that she doesn't respond to my emails or calls. 
Wow. Are you uncomfortable with the concept of chosen people as a civil libertarian? No, I just, no I'm not at all. Um, I understand it. I don't understand it as privileged. Um, um, you know, for, for, for centuries, Jews kept saying, I mean, it's in Fiddler on the Roof, God, please stop choosing us. Why are you choosing us for all these terrible things yeah, yeah. that are happening? Look, every group thinks they're chosen. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pronounced in the Jewish tradition, but in every tradition, the Muslims think they're chosen. Uh, Christian people think they're chosen. Uh, uh, various Protestant sects uh, and Protestant groups, subgroups, call themselves chosen. Everybody's entitled to think of themselves as chosen to do certain things. We are chosen to be a light unto the nations. We are chosen to try to lead by our example. Um, our chosenness has caused us a lot of difficulty. So I have no problem with the concept of the chosen people. Um, if we are privileged, we've earned our privilege. Um, you know, I remember at Harvard, people talking about me having white privilege, white privilege. Are you kidding? I grew up as the first person in my family to go to college. Um, I grew up, we didn't have toys. We didn't have, you know, uh, I couldn't go to college if we had to pay. I went to a free college to Brooklyn college. I might have been able to afford Yeshiva University tuition. It wasn't very high in those days, but they didn't want me. So, again, Brooklyn College. But, um, no, I have no problem with the concept of chosen. But I would hold up Jewish literature from the Torah to the most recent response against any any religious literature anywhere in the world in terms of humanitarian, civil liberties, progressive, you name it, by any criteria, our religious tradition does very, very well. What was your most... If I may, what was your most spiritual moment that you can remember in your life or one of your most deep spiritual transcendent moments? I think being at the birth of my children uh, was uh, very transcendent. Um, uh, Seeing the death of uh, parents. um, um, Interesting story about that. My mother, who lived till 95 and was very active, and even when she couldn't remember things, um, she would always have conversations. She would call me Moshe Pippik because she couldn't remember my name. And my brother, she called Chaim Yankel. But she could have conversations. When, when she was dying, her kidneys were failing. And the doctors all said, take her off dialysis. It'll just be painful. And she won't be able to live. And my brother and I said, look, uh, doctors are one thing. But my mother was very religious. She wouldn't want us to make the decision based on the doctors alone. Uh, she would want the decision to be made by her rabbi. And so we consulted with her rabbi, and the rabbi said, absolutely keep her on dialysis. She'll deal with the pain. She wants an additional few months being alive, seeing her children and grandchildren. We did it. She was on dialysis. She lived the extra few months. She had decent quality of life. She was able to interact with her children and grandchildren. So, you know, uh, the rabbis can be right, and the the doctors who we love and who we respected just saw it in a more medical rather than in a more spiritual way. So I've had a lot of spiritual moments. Um, I don't tend to have spiritual moments in shul. Um, my spiritual moments tend to be outside of shul. Uh, but, you know, I when I go to shul, I love to daven. I love to say the words. The words are very meaningful to me. Uh, as a skeptic, I challenge the words when I read them, and I always think of alternative interpretations. But, uh, you know, I love Jewish sources. So we can't ignore this one. What is your feeling, not just as a lawyer, not just as a teacher of law, not just as a defender of law, but also as a Jew and as a lover of Israel in terms of the whole Trump presidency and the impeachment debate? Well, yeah, you have four or five hours. I, I only have a few more minutes, so I'll have to give you the short version. Um, I have mixed feelings about Donald Trump. Um, I think he is a very divisive person. I don't like his language he's used. I don't like his attitude toward women. Uh, there are a lot of things about him personally I don't like. That would be true, by the way, of Bill Clinton, too. Uh, certainly true of Barack Obama and certainly true of Lyndon Johnson. Again, we don't expect perfection. Um, I disagreed with a lot of Trump's policies toward immigration. We're a nation of immigrants. Uh, We should be more welcoming of immigrants of all backgrounds. 
I don't believe in his use of descriptions of certain countries is better than other countries. So I have a lot of fundamental disagreement. On the other hand, when it came to Israel, I worked closely with him and his administration on Israel. I met him over Israel. The first time I met him, he came over to me and he said, you, I have to talk to. I hear you're a good friend of Netanyahu. I need to get messages to him. And so he used me as a conduit to Bibi Netanyahu. And I think his approach to Israel was exactly right. What he did was he told the Palestinians, you have a veto over the peace process. Israel will make peace with the uh, Palestinians uh, if they choose to and if it's in their interest. But Israel will make peace with and normalize with Arab countries and other countries. He did a marvelous job with the Abraham Accords, with the movement to Jerusalem of the embassy, with the recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, with his executive order saying that any university that tolerated anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism will lose federal funding. Again, I consulted on that draft. So I worked very closely with the Trump Iran administration. Deal? While what this- about the Iran deal? How do you feel about the Iran deal? Well, I think the Iran deal was a disaster. The original Iran deal, I wrote a book about it called The Case Against the Iran Deal. I hope we don't go back in it as such. Um, I think that maybe it would have been better to try to sit down and negotiate a better deal, but I don't disapprove of him getting out of the deal. Um, I think Biden will get back in some form of the deal if the Iranians are willing to make the deal stronger and longer and more extensive and and different than the original deal. There are a few people up now for confirmation who were strongly supportive of the deal, and I hope they don't get confirmed. Um, I'm going to be very tough toward the Biden administration if they go back willy-nilly to the deal itself, because I think the deal is a mistake. Look, he should never have been impeached. He did not commit impeachable offenses. Um, Having studied the Torah, I understand what language means. I understand how important every word is. When the Constitution says treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, it means that. It means crimes, criminal-type behavior. It doesn't mean abuse of power. It doesn't mean obstruction of Congress. It doesn't mean making a speech on January 6th. It means criminal behavior. And Donald Trump was never accused of criminal behavior. And so he should not have been impeached. I'd like to move on now and let's give the Biden administration a chance. Let's have an open mind. Let's see if he can help unite the country. Let's be critical of him where criticism is deserved. And let's praise him where praise is deserved. And I want to praise you for Thanking for welcoming me on this talk. I enjoyed very much your great questions, your interesting questions. Thanks. And I hope that your viewers and listeners uh, enjoyed my answers. But at, feel free to disagree with them. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that's the role of a teacher to provoke some thinking. We're and Jews. I hope I provoke some thinking. We're Jews. If I could quote to you your teacher, Ellie Wiesel, I once heard from him that we Jews love debating each other. We just give. There are debate sophisticated names. We fight with the world and we call it sociology. We fight with God, we call it theology. We fight with ourselves and we call it psychology. One That's last brilliant. question. I heard this from Alan. But Alan, if you had 30 seconds to talk to the Jewish world, what's your message to the people of Israel and to the Jewish people? Get together, get together, focus on your commonality, focus on the things we agree with. We'll always disagree at the edges, but agree that Israel has the right not only to exist, but to thrive, that it is the right to be judged by a single standard. Make sure that we demand for ourselves what we have earned. If not for we're not for ourselves, who will be for us, but if we're for ourselves alone, what are we? And in in if not now, when? So I think we have to stick together, make sure that we always defend ourselves, that we defend Israel, but also that we remain a light unto the world. One last question. Hello? One last question. So many people are asking, yes, many people are asking, isn't it the constitutional power for government to mandate everyone to vaccinate? I could have a whole show on that. I, I'll give you the short answer. If vaccination prevents the spread of a deadly disease, the government has the power to order it. 
if it only prevents you from getting the disease, then the government doesn't have the power to order it. So it depends on the nature of the contagion, the nature of the disease. I think these vaccines can be made mandatory. Uh, I don't think at this point in time we're there because right now we're trying to vaccinate people who want vaccinations. But I think anybody, everybody should want a vaccination. And remember that in the Torah, it says that when people were afflicted with a communicable disease, leprosy or uh, other kinds of diseases, they were forced to go outside the city. It wasn't voluntary. They were forced to go outside the city so that they wouldn't communicate it. So I think that Pikach Nefesh and concepts of police power under our constitution are similar. And under certain circumstances, you can compel vaccination, or at least wow. you can condition schools on vaccination. Have you been vaccination. in quarantine? Vaccination. Have you been quarantined? We've been Have you been quarantined? Not me, no. No, we've been voluntarily isolated, but not quarantined. Wait, some people will say that uh, in a normal circumstance that the vaccination was, the vaccine was proven to be good. And but, so that's fine. But right now that people don't, everyone agrees we don't know the full extent of the long-term effects. Can you mandate it? Well, uh, can you make somebody serve in the army? Uh, the answer is yes, you can make them serve in the army, even though nobody has ever proved that the army is good for your health. So there are certain things that can be compelled in our country. And if the vaccine is effective in preventing the spread, if it helps to get herd immunity, and um, and unless there is strong evidence of negative effects, I think the government can generally compel it. But that's a whole other show. It would take hours to go through all the issues. But I can tell you one thing. And here I challenge any rabbi to disagree with me, that under Jewish law, the saving of lives, under the way the Torah describes how lepers and others were treated, there is no prohibition in Jewish law against taking the vaccine. And those very small number of rabbis, very small number, who have said there is a Jewish prohibition were wrong. And the vast number of rabbis, including the vast number of Hasidic rabbis, who have said it's permissible, some have said it's compulsory, under Jewish law, I think pikach nefesh is so important that saving lives, not only of our own lives, but of our neighbors' lives, our families' lives, our children's lives, take precedence over almost everything. Uh, else in life. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so, so much. Okay, thank you. Please send me a copy of this link so I can send it on to other people, okay? Awesome. Thank you. Be well. Sure, bye. You too. Bye. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.